distance. And if you need um, something to get you over the hump into the Christmas uh, spirit, I recommend you come out next Saturday, 1030, uh, to the annual uh, Advent Christmas workshop here at PMC. Um, if you're wondering what it is, it's, 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 all it is is it's cookies, coffee, laughing kids, and gingerbread houses. So um, there's not a downside there. <laughs> but <clears throat> if something is, is about to begin, that means something's ending, and that something is the liturgical church year. And if you follow the liturgy, then you know that today is Christ the King Sunday, and it's the culmination of the biblical story that we remember together here on Sunday mornings. Next Sunday, we will begin the story anew with the first Sunday of Advent. We will begin telling uh, the mysterious story of a child born into this world who revealed to us the nature of God. But this morning, we are forced to wrangle with images of Jesus that I, at least, did not grow up with. Uh, Christ the King was not a central idea in my Mennonite upbringing. I know there's a deep theological meaning behind a Sunday called Christ the King, and as Anabaptists, we try to take following Jesus and living lives marked by loyalty to Jesus as a central idea of our faithfulness. It's just that the King part uh, feels a bit much. <clears throat> Maybe it's my Mennonite piety shining through. Uh, and maybe I'm just uncomfortable with the naked claim to power. We do sing songs uh, that claim Jesus is King of Kings, and we're on the cusp of a season where we're going to sing with gusto the words, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, King of Kings, forever and ever, hallelujah, and Lord of Lords, forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah. And you can be thankful I didn't try to sing that. It's easy to think that the Catholic ideas that gave rise to the concept of Christ the King are foreign to our Anabaptist images of Jesus as a suffering servant. But on some level, I do think that both traditions have tried to communicate the same thing. Following Jesus means rising above the national allegiances of this world and connecting as beloved children of God held together by our identity in Christ. And it's a concept that was needed in a world divided by war, and of course it's still needed today. But theological nuances like that are easily misplaced. Uh, I remember a little game that we used to play when we were in middle school, and something like this. Uh, I'm the best. Well, no, I'm better than the best. Well, I'm the bestest. Well, I'm the most bestest, and so on, you know. And I sometimes feel that religious people tend to do this when they talk about God, when they talk about their God, when they talk about the most bestest God. And I think that that might be where my uneasiness with terms like Christ the King comes from. My, my Jesus is the best, the most powerful Jesus. I was reminded of this kind of immature worldview in a recent letter to the editor in the Anabaptist world, where a reader suggested that the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians could be solved if they all recognized Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Alan Kreider, who was a professor at AMBS, had a class on early Christianity where he would 
show the progression of images of Jesus throughout Christian history. And I remember one of the earliest images that Kreider showed us was a wall etching, or to put it in everyday uh, language, an ancient graffiti found in Rome. It was an image of the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, but Jesus was depicted as a donkey. And on, he was as a donkey on the cross, and kneeling at this cross was an image of a man. And the words that were scrawled at the bottom of this piece of graffiti say, Alexamenos worships his God. It is an image of defeat. It's a failed savior dying on a cross in front of his follower, powerless. This is one of the uh, earliest images we have of Jesus, and it's an image that is as far from nobility as you can get. Now, if you're a student of Christian history, you know that the image, that image of Jesus did not last long, and we now live with an uncomfortable story of Christian imperialism, where the image of that same cross was used by armies to go into war in the name of Christ. And we also live with the historical record that shows how Jesus slowly became depicted in art as more and more powerful and more and more European. Around uh, 1940, an artist named Warner Salmon painted uh, Jesus as a white man with long flowing blonde hair. And it's a testament to the power of art that all of us can see that image titled Head of Christ or an image like the one that's behind me painted by the Povey brothers and acknowledge that an image of pure fiction lives in our brains with the label Jesus. Uh, I recently asked the MYF to share their images of God with me. It's an interesting exercise uh, because one doesn't even have to believe in God in order to have an image of God. And I purposely asked them not to think about it very hard. I just wanted them to share the first thing that pops into their heads. And the shocking thing is that when we do it that way, how many of us see the same thing? A large, white, bearded, Caucasian, grandfatherly man looking down from a cloud. <laughs> My version of Windows recently updated, and now I have something called Copilot. And uh, Copilot is artificial intelligence if you have a Mac. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, I asked Copilot to draw me an image of God. And it told me that it couldn't draw an image of God because it wasn't allowed to have beliefs about such things. Uh, <laughs> but it had no trouble uh, drawing me a, a picture of a peacemaking Mennonite. Uh, <laughs> it produced an image that looked like a Portland hipster with a dove on its shoulder. <laughs> so, I decided to ask Copilot if God was omnipotent, and it answered very quickly, oh yes, God is considered to be omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful and has ultimate power over all things. This means that he is the source of all power and is limitless in strength, wisdom, love, holiness, and the ability to perform his sovereign will. 
I hope this helps. Let me know if you, if you have any other questions. So how handy was that? It seems that my co-pilot does have an image of God after all. And that image is male. And he is all-powerful. As some of you know, uh, I'm not a big fan of preaching. What I would rather be doing um, this morning is talking with each of you over coffee about where our respective images of God have come from. I would rather be exploring together elements of the way our human brains fill in the gaps about things that we don't know. And one of those things that we don't know is the mystery of who God is. So, great art and Greek mythology and Saturday morning cartoons and cheesy art and angry preachers fill in the gaps. And we end up with meaningless images that are too often filled with white supremacy and patriarchy. I would also like to be having an honest conversation with you about how images of God come bundled with attributes like omnipotence and maleness. And how I'm not sure that I can make sense of any of that anymore. I wonder what you would say if I told you I'm not able to believe in a God who is all-powerful. Not when so many bombs. <clears throat> are dropping on so many children and not when families are being destroyed by meaningless violence. I can't believe in a God who would have the power to stop that and simply do nothing. So, I wish I could hear what you would say. I, I, I wish I knew how you thought about that. Thomas J. Ord recently wrote a book called The Death of Omnipotence, and in it he argues that the Bible does not support the concept of an all-powerful or omnipotent God. In the conclusion of his first chapter, where he does a textful, textual analysis of where these concepts have come from, he states that the Hebrew word Shaddai is translated as omnipotent in Latin and almighty in English. And Ord goes on to explain that the word almighty first appears in scripture as a translation of the Hebrew word Shaddai that we find in Genesis 17 when God appears to Abraham and says, I am El Shaddai. Many Bibles translate this phrase as I am God Almighty. God then promises to make a covenant with Abraham and greatly increase his numbers, provided he walks faithfully and is blameless. And Ord points out that God Almighty is a mistranslation of El Shaddai and that the oldest and most likely meaning of Shaddai is breasts. The Genesis passage and those in which God is linked with Shaddai are better translated as I am God of breasts or I am the breasted God. This makes sense given the writer's reference to Abraham's descendants. This will be born 
They will be born in their mother's breast will nourish them, and metaphorically speaking, so they greatly increase. Now, Ord goes on to explain how Greek writers of the Septuagint mistranslated these words as pentocrator, and this led to immense confusion and error. Pentocrator does not mean almighty or omnipotent in the sense of God exerting all power, controlling others, or being able to do absolutely anything. It's better translated as all holding. And Dr. Ord argues that a more faithful image of God <clears throat> is that of a mother holding and gathering her child to her breast, an image of love, protection, nurture, warmth, and strength. And as we watch the horrendous images coming out of, of Gaza, I'm, I'm left feeling helpless, as I'm sure you do as well. But this is where my new image of God fills me with some hope because I know that should there ever be an opportunity to offer support to Palestinian refugees, that I am part of a community that will gather them up and hold them close in harmony <clears throat> with the mothering God energy that flows through this congregation. I've seen you act this way uh, many times. Uh, over the years, I've received notes offering anonymous support for people or kids in this congregation. You've gathered each other up and held each other through tough times. You spend time and offer friendship to families uh, struggling with housing needs during our Family Promise Weeks. And I'd be remiss um, if I didn't mention receiving the same mothering kindness from all of you uh, personally, as I went through uh, my heart surgery this past summer, the cards and the texts were wonderful. And Henry Jansen showed up on my deck with his blender and had a smoothie with me. <laughs> so. when, when I think about my changing images of the divine, uh, I struggle to understand why it's taken me so long to see what was always right in front of me. You all. This congregation, you reflect the divine. You offer that gift, that insight to each other. And you can argue with me that God is all-powerful and somehow sits above all of this in some kind of masculine, silent control. But I've come to see her more clearly down here among us, holding the vulnerable in her arms. And I think she needs our participation she needs us to feed the hungry, to offer a drink to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick and imprisoned. So I think that's why we're preparing to tell the story once again of a vulnerable baby who was born into this world to live among us, to show us the power of love, whose spirit ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, his heavenly mother's kingdom. Amen.